Well, what I thought I'd start off by doing is I'm going to bring up some quotes on the screen from well-known and famous personalities, and we're going to try to look for a uh, theme that's sort of woven throughout these quotes. So here's the first quote. You've probably heard of Colin Powell. He said, there are no secrets to success. It is the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. Here's a second quote from Henry Thoreau. Do not hire a man who does your work for money, but him who does it for love of it. Here's a third quote. Vidal Sassoon. The only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. thought that was pretty clever. And then the philosopher Dagwood Bumstead You can't teach people to be lazy. Either they have it or they don't. (laughs) What do you see there is sort of the theme that joins those four quotes together. We're going to talk today about hard work. And in fact, the Bible has something to say about hard work. Let me give you a couple of preliminary passages. The first one is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. There it reads... It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And then way back in Proverbs, which is chocked full of life-giving truth, just gems to sort of meditate on. It says in Proverbs 23, 21, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them in rags. Did you know that the Bible calls the people of God to be marked by hard work? Hard work is life-giving, and it's a blessing. The Bible calls us to work hard at it, to occupy your time doing important things, to occupy your time praying and working for Christ. And working for Christ isn't just about doing work at, in, or through your local church. Everything that we do should ultimately be for Christ. Whether we're putting things together on an assembly line, sketching up drawings for a new machine, teaching a class, helping people in a hospital, whatever you do for a living, it's all supposed to be from a Christian worldview, work for Christ. And the passage we're going to look at today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is going to conclude, by the way, our study of 2 Thessalonians, really is a passage that is calling us back to that basic stuff, to be a prayerful people, dependent upon Christ, taking a stand for God, even in the face of opposition, and calling one another to work hard, to use our lives productively as God has designed us to. So as we begin, let me just ask you this question. Are you motivated to work hard in your daily life and ministry? Are you motivated to work hard? Would people say, yeah, that person's a hard worker. They're responsible. They get the job done. They're not lazy. Would people be able to say that about you? We're going to start by looking at the first few verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I think one of the main truths here is that God is calling us to work hard to build what I'll just call spiritual muscle, 
to work hard at building spiritual muscle. Let me read this text to you, beginning with verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So two things are coming out there. The writer is praying for basically success in gospel proclamation. He wants to bear fruit for his labor to Christ. And then secondly, he's praying for perseverance and protection from the evil obstacles that will inevitably arise arise when we do ministry. So praying for fruit, praying for deliverance, for not all have faith, he writes, but the Lord is faithful. We know that to be true. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. What is it that the apostle is calling the church to do? Do what? Well, overcome the enemy. Heed the instructions that he's about to give in this chapter and the instructions that he's given in the previous two chapters to stay strong. How do we do that? Well, we already learned how to do that in part in our study of chapter one and chapter two. But in addition to that, we're supposed to be praying for one another's effectiveness in ministry. Do do you do that? Do you pray for my effectiveness in ministry? Do I pray for your effectiveness in ministry? Do we keep each other in prayer asking that the Lord would enable us to bear much fruit for his honor and for his glory? That's one thing that we're supposed to be doing. We're also supposed to be praying for deliverance from evil. And we discover here in this text that evil men are actually evil because they're agents of the evil one. Evil people aren't just going around making decisions that are wrong because they are innately evil. They are agents of and influenced by the devil himself. Which, by the way, reminds us that you can only be a servant of God or a servant of Satan. There's no neutrality In life, you're either serving God or you're serving the forces of darkness. So, Paul is praying for the Thessalonian church that they would pray for him, and obviously, he's praying for them that they would be delivered from evil. We see that same kind of prayer coming through in the Lord's Prayer, do we not? Deliver us from evil, deliver us from temptation. And then, thirdly, that they would obey. And do what they've heard preached. Now, these are things that we need to take into consideration. The apostle is calling the church to pray for one another's effectiveness in ministry, to pray for deliverance from the evil one. And in this blanket statement, I want you to pray or I want you to obey everything that we have commanded. Why? Because the whole of the Bible everything that's been given to us, all of the commands of scripture from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, whether delivered by a prophet or an apostle is beneficial for my spiritual maturity. All of it is. And so there's this old fashioned basic call to make sure that if we're going to persevere, that we are obeying the Bible. I was thinking about this 
in my own life and in the lives of people that I rub shoulders with, all the excuses that we can come up with to disobey the Bible. So we're people of the book, right? We believe in the authority of scripture. We're Bible-believing, biblical Christians. We're evangelicals, although I don't, not sure I really want to even go by that anymore because evangelicals today are, seem to be, frankly, getting increasingly liberal. You know, the, the jelly in evangelicals is rising to the surface. Not really solid on a whole lot of anything, but we'll just say biblical Christians. We believe the Bible from cover to cover is the word of God. And yet we can somehow in our minds at times say we believe in the authority of scripture that, but then come up with multiple excuses to disobey scripture. Some of them include, well, that's just cultural. Well, truly there are commandments in scripture that are cultural, but they're not all cultural. And it's amazing how something suddenly becomes cultural when you don't like it. But prior to that, you never really thought of it as something that's cultural. So the cultural excuse oftentimes is a rather lame one. Or when someone confronts you with the word of God and tells you what the word of God says, a lot of people pull the legalism card. Well, that's just legalism. What do you mean by that? Do you know there are rules in the Bible? There are legal codes in the Bible that you're bound to obey? Legalism is actually man-made rules outside of the scripture. That's legalism. And we ain't into that. But we're very much into the legal code of the scripture. When God says this is right or this is wrong or we should do this or not do that, that's not legalism. That's the kind of obedience that God is calling the church to. Or another excuse is, well, God told me otherwise. Have you met Christians like that? They're just sort of led. They have this special relationship with God, this special connection. And regardless, they don't even need to read the Bible. Regardless of what the Bible says, if they feel this to be true, it's true. They're led by their emotions, their sentiment, perhaps their own personal perspectives, their own desires and choices instead of by the word of God or the pragmatism excuse. Well, it works, doesn't it? Well, that doesn't mean it's right or it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to work. Well, how do you know it doesn't work? Lots of excuses. We can say we believe in the authority of scripture, but we need to ask ourselves, do we actually obey the scriptures? Here in this text, the apostle, as he concludes this book, says, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. We should be able to say that about every Christian in our church. I have confidence in you. You have confidence in me that we will do the things that we have been commanded to do. Not just the things specific to this chapter, but all of the things that the word of God has given to us. What is it that motivates that kind of obedience, by the way? Is it just like raw, passionate religiosity? No. What does the text tell us? It's really, it's the love of God. May the Lord, look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The more your heart is directed to the love of God, the more you meditate upon God's incredible gifts to us, even as we've done today in worship or through the Lord's Supper, the more you're going to want to obey what God has said. Why would you not want to obey the lover of your soul, the one who has redeemed you from death and hell? 
the one who always has your best interest in mind. Why would you not want to obey a God like that? The love of God is more than just a doctrine that makes us feel good. It fuels our obedience to the Lord. Obedience really is a responsive act to God's love for us. So we have prayer. We have a call to obedience. We have a call to perseverance. These are never wastes of time in our lives. And when we see the spirit of God moving and God's people leaning into his word, hopefully we, like the Apostle Paul toward the Thessalonian church, can have a hopeful outlook that all of us will do these things and we will do them because we love God. And then we have a second component to this passage. There's a call here to be working hard in life and service. Just before I read this section to you, let me just ask you a little question here to get thinking. Would you say that it's ever right to let a relationship with another professing Christian sort of cool off? Would you say it's ever right? You're in relationship with another Christian. Something happens. Is it ever right to sort of back away, cool off, maybe separate for a period of time? Is that ever right? Many would say no. The Bible says yes. There are multiple reasons for that. One is recorded here, beginning with verse 6. Check it out. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus. So if you don't go any further than that, you're like, okay, whatever's going to be said next is kind of solemn. This is a solemn commandment. This is a weighty commandment. He's commanding us in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's he going to say? Here's what he says. That you keep away from any brother, meaning another Christian, who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, right away, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty intense. But what kind of idleness? Are we just talking about like idleness in faith? Like they're not in church enough? They're not praying enough? Well, he's much more bare bones about it even than that. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. As we often say, Christianity is an imitative faith, meaning we learn much about what it looks like to obey scripture by watching one another put it into practice. So we look to the scripture, we look to the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, but I learn by watching you. And hopefully you're learning a thing or two by watching me. We learn as we imitate one another. This is not a call to arrogance or a call to personal messiahship, but as we are incarnating the values and virtues of the Lord Jesus, we see that in one another and we learn what that should look like in our own lives. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. So he gives some examples. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. In other words, we weren't just takers. But with toil and labor, we worked night, worked the night shift and the day shift. That we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. What is the example to imitate? Hard 
work, earning your keep, not being a taker. Let me say it again. Not being a taker, but a worker, a hard worker. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's pretty categorical. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Before we go any further, your mind should be starting to, the wheels in your head should start to be spin pretty fast as you think about the reality that this is not a message that we see a lot in culture. We see something very different being put forward as virtuous, as righteous. We'll come back to that. Look at verse 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you, that is among the church, walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I love that language there. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. You're going to be busy doing something. If you're not busy doing the stuff you should be doing, you're going to be busy doing the stuff you shouldn't be doing. So you'll notice people that are gossipy, people that have too much time on their hands get all gossipy and they're always involved in everyone's business. A lot of drama in their lives. They got tons of time to comment on everyone's status on social media. They got time to sort of follow everyone's lifestyle choices. They know what I'm doing more than I know what I'm doing half the time. Because they're not working. They're busybodies. Now such persons, we command and encourage you in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So I asked you a question, is it ever right to allow a relationship to cool off? And you might think, yeah, uh, if the person's a blasphemer, they're stealing, they're violent toward me, of course. But what about this sin that we would often think of as a kind of a low-level, no-big-deal kind of sin? Laziness. How many churches put people under discipline for laziness? Oh, put them under discipline for adultery. Definitely bank robbery. But laziness, oh, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. God says it's a big deal. Old-fashioned word is shun such a person. Stay away from such a person. Pretty, in pretty categorical language, God calls out the sin of laziness. Of laziness. Now think about this. Go way back in your mind to Genesis. You know, Genesis chapter 3 records the first sin, the fall of man into sin. But if you actually go before that, in Genesis chapter 2, think about this. It says that God made man and woman in his own image, and he put man in the garden to what? To work it. To work it. So prior to sin entering into the world, work was considered a righteous thing. It's part of our identity as image bearers of God to actually work. You're like, well, I thought it was a consequence of sin. (laughs) Well, hard work and toil is a consequence of sin. That's part and parcel of living in a broken world. 
But work is actually part of the, the, the ideal of Eden. It's a blessing. It's part of our identity. God created us to work the garden. That's part of being a steward, as the Bible calls us, of creation. So one could then argue theologically that laziness is anti-creation. Laziness is anti-human. Laziness is anti-your identity as an image bearer of God. When we fall into the sin of laziness, we're actually failing to do that which God innately and originally created us to do. God created us to work. On the other hand, when we fall into laziness or we just expect that everyone else is going to take care of us. And by the way, a lot of people will encourage that in us. Just let the government take care of it. Just let your parents take care of it. Just let the schooling system take care of it. Nothing good comes from that. We have a command here to avoid idleness. And this goes beyond, this isn't just about idleness and ministry. We have a command here to earn what you eat, to imitate other people's work ethics. Like, what does it mean to be a hard worker? Go find someone that's a hard worker and watch them. Imitate their way of life. We're called to work quietly with contentment. That's huge. How many of us went to work this week and were content in our work? Think about that. Wow, you don't understand my world. My boss is kind of ornery. Or I don't get paid enough. Or the benefit package stinks. Or, you know, it's always cold or it's always hot. Okay, I get it. We live in a broken world. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 was written into a broken world. And one of the things that should mark the Christian is that we are called to work quietly with contentment. People should see, our employers should see in us things they don't see in lost people. You may not be the most competent person at work, the most skilled person at work, the most educated person at work, but you should be valued because you work quietly, meaning conscientiously, with contentment, and you earn your own living. And yet, sadly, we need to preach this and preach this hard because as evidently was the case in the first century, it's still the same today. Even among God's people, this isn't always taken seriously, folks. It's not always taken seriously. We have able-bodied people, for example, that claim to be Christians, able-bodied people. They're capable of work, living off the social security system year after year, decade after decade, and they somehow think that like, the world owes them that. Maybe they've even told that that's a Christian thing, that it's part of society's responsibility to care for people that do not want to work, but who can work. We see this in the church, young people, maybe some older people too, living off their parents' wealth. They're adults. They're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, 30. They're still living off their parents. Their parents buy their groceries, pay their car insurance, pay their cell phone. They don't contribute anything to the household. And they feel okay about that? 
Shouldn't feel okay about that. It's not right. It's actually sinful. According to this passage, it's actually sinful. Or employees that go to work and they're more apt to make demands of their employers than to be thankful for the opportunity to work. This passage is calling us to take seriously God's solemn commandment issued to us in the glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a people that are hardworking. You know what? Everybody should want to hire a Christian. Everybody should want. You go into a job interview, you get your cross on, you're hired. I don't even need to know where you went to school. Everybody should want to serve or or hire a Christian. If Christians are obeying what God has called them to, who, who wouldn't want to hire someone like this? That works hard, that works quietly, and with contentment. Some things to consider. Parents. Parents, you're going to be the primary shapers of your child's work ethic. Sometimes you're going to get pushed back. We all do. We gave it to our parents too. But parents, do you permit, maybe even encourage laziness in your children? Or do you encourage your children to work hard? Well, I want my kid to do well at school. You know what? That's fine. Do well at school. But this passage isn't talking about going to school. It's about working. Do you encourage your children to work? You know, a lot of parents nowadays, oh, my, kid, my kid can work when they're 22 after they've finished all their education at university. Really? No one's going to want to hire them. And if they do, they're probably not going to be a great worker. Start them off young. Give them chores to do. Encourage them to get a part-time job. When they have an income, make them pay for their own stuff. When they have a job, charge them room and board. If you don't do that because you're soft-hearted, you're so soft-hearted, you've got to put your heart aside on this and just obey what the Scripture says. What kind of a person do you think they're going to become? That's not good parenting. It's not good parenting. Let me say it again. It's not good parenting. It's not, it's not, it's not good parenting to not encourage your kids to work. It's not good parenting. In fact, it's anti-biblical, i.e. anti-Christian parenting. It's a commandment given to us in the solemn name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about employees? When you go to work, I know some of you are employers, but employees, when you go to work, do you work as little as you possibly can to keep your job? Or do you go above and beyond the call of duty, working quietly and with contentment? Do you go in grateful and thankful for the unique opportunity that we have in a country and culture like this to work? And most of us actually get to pick our vocations. That's kind of unique if you study human history. We get to pick where we want to work. In fact, we almost probably have too many options. That's why a lot of young people coming up don't know what they want to do. They have too many options. In the old days, if you're a baker, your kid's going to be a baker, right? We have so many options. But when you go to work, you do as little as possible or do you work hard? In your life in general, are you characterized by hard work or do you live for the weekends? Living for the weekends, frittering away 
endless months of your life, I don't know, laying on beaches or binging on Netflix. You know, a little blessing in our household is um, Netflix brought up this little thing on my Blu-ray player that says, as of December 1st, you're not going to be able to play our stuff, blah, 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 because the technology is experiment. That's a blessing. Because you know what? You know what I'm finding increasingly? My life is way more exciting than almost anything I can watch on television. It is. I mean, you watch it, it's like, this is ridiculous. I got stuff to do, places to go, and people to see. My life is way more exciting than the latest adventure movie or a lot of these programs we see out there that really don't feed the soul at all. You fritter away your life playing video games. I'm not a video game guy, sorry, I hate video games, but I'm increasingly hearing about young people wasting hours every week, 10, 15, 20 plus hours a week. You have one life to live, folks. You're watching a little animated object bomb around on a screen. This is, a, this is the way you're using your life. Wasting your life. If you're wasting your life, you're living in laziness. Your whole life is about the weekend and entertainment, the next vacation. God has a message for you. Stop it. You're living in sin. And a call to all of us to hold each other accountable to this, to the point that if someone continues to live in that kind of a lifestyle, the relationship cools off. You back off. Or maybe you're living your life and you're like, well, you might think I'm lazy, but my real problem is I I just don't know what to do. I I don't know where I should work. I'm just kind of chilling out at home because I, I'm not sure what kind of, just go flip burgers. They'll figure it out. After the millionth burger, it's going to be much clearer what you want to do. Just go flip burgers and eventually you'll figure it out. You know, the only free ride is to heaven. But in the meanwhile, God has called us to work. And because God made us to work, again, people that refuse to do so will suffer. I'm so stressed out. I'm so anxious because of work. Yeah, try not working. And you'll see spiritual decline, social decline, mental decline, emotional decline. You know who some of the weirdest people are to interact with? People that don't work. They're never interacting with other humans. They just become weirder and weirder. But when we work, there's a blessing attached to that. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. But I'm tired of working. I just want to retire. I I need a vacation. Check out verses 13 and 14 and 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. Hard work is good. Working hard at keeping biblical expectations in your household and your community of faith is is ultimately going to bless you. It's going to bless you. You want your mind to start to shrivel? Be lazy. You want your relationships to start to shrivel up? 
be lazy. You want to be riddled with panic and anxiety and depression because your life sucks? Be lazy. Do nothing. But if you work as unto the Lord, there's a blessing attached to that. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person making notes and have nothing to do with him. Now listen to this line. (laughs) Run this by your sociology teacher. That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It says that he may be ashamed. Like, oh, just a second now. My sociology teacher told me we should never shame people. That's bad for their self-esteem. That's always positive reinforcement. Okay, that, there's a theological word for that that starts with a G. It's garbage. That's garbage. If you're doing something shameful, you should be ashamed of your actions. If you're lazy and you don't have a valid excuse for not being able to work, obviously people that are disabled, ill, valid reasons not to work. But if you, sh- if you can work and you're not, you're like, oh, I'm feeling kind of shame. People are kind of shaming me. Good. Good. You should be ashamed. But that's not nice. Oh, well. There's no commandment in the Bible that says, thou shalt be nice. It's shameful. You should feel bad about it. And know this. We don't want you to live in your shame. So that's why we're preaching this. What does work do? It lifts people. Lifts people up. And it honors the image of God that you bear. In fact, obedience brings peace. And it brings contentment. And part of obeying God is doing what God has called us to do. Which is getting up in the morning and working hard day and night. Now here we have these benedictory words where God, through the apostle, wishes us peace and blessings as we obey the commandments that we've discovered in 2 Thessalonians, let me read it to you in verses 16 through 18. Now may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Obviously, the prerequisite to that is that you're obeying him. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine as it is the way I write. So typically, best as we can tell, men like Paul, when they were writing letters, would hire a person. They called them an amanuensis, a scribe, and they would dictate the letter, and that person would write it out because their spelling is accurate. Their ability to form letters is clear. Paul probably wrote like me, you know, chicken scratchings. You can hardly read it. So he'd have someone write the bulk of his letters, it appears, but at the end, he would always write it in his own unique handwriting, which the churches would get to recognize to sort of authenticate it. Why? Because previously he said there's some people sending fake letters. So this authenticates his letter as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this final statement, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Would we not want that for one another too? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with you all. I want the peace of the Lord Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. I know you want that to be present in my life as well. 
God wants us to live in his grace and in his peace, and we can when we stand firm for him and work hard in life and ministry. So will you commit yourself to increased obedience in this area to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ?